Okay, Matthew 11, 1 to 6, doing some review. As we pointed out last time, these chapters are filled with reactions to the claims of Jesus Christ. They were same reactions back then that people have today. And uh, uh, they, as we go through these chapters, 11 and 12, you're going to see reactions of... Uh, Doubt and criticism and indifference and rejection, blasphemy, others. So uh, we're going to look at them. The first one he deals with is the response of doubt. And as I pointed out last time, when the New Testament talks about doubt, whether it's in the Gospels or the Epistles, it primarily focuses in on believers. Uh, it's as if you have to believe something before you can doubt it. You have to be committed to it before you can begin to question it. And so doubt is pointed to as a unique problem of the believer. And I tell you that to encourage you that it's normal for believers to experience doubt. Uh, and uh, John the Baptist experienced it. And if the greatest man that ever lived until his time had doubts, then how, we can be comforted by that. Uh, verse 1 says, Now it happened that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. The text doesn't state it precisely, but the implication is they went on their first short-term missionary trip while he went to various cities in Galilee to teach and preach. And as he was ministering, we're told in verses 2 and 3, that he was approached by some disciples of John the Baptist. It says, Now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for someone else? Remember, John was the forerunner of Christ. He, he was the one who announced his coming. He said, Behold the Lamb of God. He, he said, He must increase, I must decrease. But there are certain things that caused him to doubt. So he sends these guys to ask, Are you the Messiah or is there going to be somebody else? And so it reflects his perplexity, reflects his doubt. Even though he had affirmed his belief, even though he had known who Jesus Christ was. So it's clear that he's doubting. And, but the thing that was good about John is when he had doubt, he went to the right source to have his doubt dealt with. Where does he go? He goes to the Lord. Uh, John was simply puzzled. He had prophesied great things about Jesus. Specifically, he'd spoken about judgment. But there was no sign of judgment that he expected. And instead, Jesus is just simply moving around among ordinary men and women, teaching them about the things of God and healing their sick. And John's asking whether or not this is the sort of thing that God's Messiah would do, or do we wait for someone else? Uh, so he, he began, is Jesus, like John, sort of a forerunner? Uh, so is there going to be a greater who comes? And so the very fact that he would ask Jesus to answer this indicates that he hadn't lost faith in Jesus or he never would have gone to him for assurance. Uh, so he, he's, yet he, he's announced all this, he's preached, and yet he's confused. He wants to be sure that Jesus is the right person at the right time, so he sends these disciples to ask Jesus. So why did John doubt? Why was he perplexed? And we saw four reasons why uh, he, was, he doubted. They're the same four reasons why we doubt. The first one's difficult circumstances. Difficult circumstances tend to make us doubt. I mean, we saw, humanly speaking, John the Baptist's career ended in disaster. Uh, he'd been this fiery, dramatic, 
dynamic, bold, courageous man who preached exactly the message that God sent him to preach. And he never had any fear. And the result was it got him imprisoned. Uh, he, Herod Antipas had taken a liking to his brother's wife, Herodias. So he seduced her. When he got home, he divorced his current wife and then took his brother's wife as his new wife. And John confronted Herod Antipas to his face. And that didn't go over very well with Herod and even less with Herodias. And uh, uh, so Herod sent people to arrest John and throw him in prison. And, uh, uh, but he didn't kill John because he feared the people. He was afraid of a revolt because the people believed John to be a prophet, which he was. Now, that wasn't uh, any prison. It was uh, on the east side of the Dead Sea. The name is Macarus. It was uh, located on the top of a steep rocky hill surrounded on all sides with a deep ravines. Herod the Great had turned it into a fortress to defend against attackers from the east. And in the bottom of that fortress was a dungeon. So you had this dark, stifling, hot pit there in the middle of a bleak desert. And that's where Herod Antipas put John. He was there for, for 18 months. John had been preaching. He'd been in the limelight. All these people coming to him. And now for a year, he's been in the blackness of a stifling pit in the middle of a hot desert. Uh, John's a true saint, a true prophet of God. He's holy. He's loyal. He's selfless, faithful. He's done exactly what God told him to do. He'd done it well. He'd been filled with the Spirit since the time he was in his mother's womb. He's taken a Nazarite vow, the highest level of spiritual commitment possible. So he has to wonder, is this my reward? And so doubt comes from our inability to deal with negative circumstances and trials. So John must have thought, I've been faithful. Isn't there a place of blessedness for a man who's been as faithful as I am? So our, our doubts can come like John's doubts. We convince ourselves that we belong to the Lord and the Lord's going to take care of us. And when something goes wrong, we really begin to doubt. Uh, if everything doesn't go the way we think it should go, we begin to wonder if God really loves us. And, if, and, and so we can fall into doubt. And once we start thinking that way, who comes along and starts pushing us further? Satan. He just pushes us further and deeper and deeper into doubt. And John doubted because of these difficult circumstances. What's he do? He goes to the right source with his doubt. He goes to the Lord, and that's the place we're to go when we have doubts over things. Go to him. As I pointed out before, Paul was in prison when he wrote those words, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Those are words from prison. So when we're in difficult circumstances, we need to do what John did. Go to the source of all answers. Negative circumstances are tough, but they should drive us to the Lord who will respond. What does uh, Jesus say in verses 4 and 5 in response? He says, you tell John that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. He's saying, John, if you... Think I don't care about those who are hurting. Take a look at the kind of people I'm touching and dealing with. Uh, I do care. And, and that's just, just a preview of the coming of the kingdom. And John's circumstances, as we know, never got worse. I mean, never got better. They got worse. He got his head chopped off eventually. 
Uh, doubt comes and from difficult circumstances, but it gives us an opportunity to exercise our faith, and faith, when it is exercised, gets stronger. So don't let anything trap you into the uh, get you, lure you into the trap of doubt. Not even difficult circumstances. Someday you'll be delivered. Maybe not in this world, but in the next. John was delivered. It wasn't the way he wanted to be delivered at the time, but he was delivered. The second thing that can cause doubt is incomplete revelation. We saw in verse 2 that John heard about the works Jesus was doing, but he doubted because he didn't have an opportunity for a first-hand look. Everything he heard was second-hand and incomplete. He couldn't see it with his own two eyes. And so he sends these guys, and the Lord says, okay, you need some first-hand information, I'll give you some. And we saw over in Luke's gospel that it makes it very clear that it says at that very time, literally in that hour, in other words, right then, Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. He granted sight to many who were blind. And then after giving that demonstration, he says, he answered these guys, these emissaries from John, and said, go report to John what you've seen and heard. And he talks about the blind and all the rest. Uh, so in other words, Jesus did this whole bunch of miracles and said, here, these are for John's benefit. Go tell him. So he performed those miracles specifically to answer John's question, to provide John with his credentials as the Messiah. You say, how does that relate to me? Well, a lot of people doubt uh, because they don't understand God's revelation. They have incomplete revelation because they don't understand the word of God. They don't know the scriptures. They have an inadequate knowledge. Uh, I'll promise you that if you immerse yourself in scripture and daily expose yourself to the revelation of God, your doubts will be erased. Uh, we all need a firsthand manifestation of the living Christ to dispel doubt, and it comes through the pages of Holy Scripture. The third thing that causes doubts, worldly influences. It says in verse 2, John had heard about the works of Christ. It confused him. Why? Because the works Jesus was doing didn't parallel with what people thought the Messiah should do. Jesus is just walking around meek and lowly, teaching and healing, and but overall nothing's changing. The wrongs are still going on. The injustices are still there. The sin's everywhere. No visible kingdom is in sight. And so like everyone else, John thought this isn't the way the kingdom's supposed to be. There's clear, this was also a problem for Jesus' 12 disciples. Uh, they were always fighting doubts because Jesus, uh, about Jesus because they were certain. They had certain expectations of the Messiah, and Jesus didn't live up to them. So when Jesus didn't do what John thought he should be doing... John began to think maybe he's just another forerunner for the Messiah. Maybe we should be looking for someone else. And, you know, we face the same causes for doubt today because we get perplexed by the plan of God. Uh, I mentioned last week, you've heard that question, if God is a God of love, why is there so much evil in the world? Or if your God is such a God of, world, uh, God of love, why doesn't he make things right in the world? Why is there so much injustice? And what people are really saying when they ask those questions is, let me tell you what kind of God I want. Uh, let me tell you how God should be and how he should act. Uh, don't let yourself become victimized by that kind of thinking or you too will doubt. Uh, when you start letting the world dictate to you what God's got to be like and what God's got to do, you're going to look at the Bible and you're going to be perplexed and start to doubt. The fourth reason we saw last week is unfulfilled expectations. John tells his disciples in verse 3 to ask Jesus, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? 
And the reason he asked that is only because Jesus hadn't fulfilled his expectations. He says the Messiah, he had proclaimed Messiah's coming in judgment. That's his message. He's always proclaiming repent, repent, repent. And so you better get your life together because the Messiah is coming. He expects the Messiah to come on the scene with blazing fire, divine thunderbolts. And here comes Jesus and all he does is collect this little group of 12 totally inept people. Um, and meekly wanders around through Galilee, healing a lot of people and preaching about the kingdom. And John just can't figure that out. So unfulfilled expectations. It's always been hard for believers to understand why God allows so many of his children to suffer and allows so many wicked, ungodly people to prosper. You expect God to do something, nothing happens, and you, so you say, how long, Lord? How long are you going to let this go on? It doesn't seem right. And that was John. And it was doubly hard for him because he had a deep devotion to righteousness. He was called by God to preach repentance and judgment. And more than that, he was called to preach the coming of the expected one who would execute that judgment, which he thought was going to begin shortly. And believers can do the same thing. So often we get excited about the Lord's imminent return, but as the years go by and he doesn't return, we, they, we just sort of, our hope and our, Commitment begins to fade and waver. And so we begin to say to ourselves, I wonder if he real, ever will come. I wonder if this is really true. Uh, and maybe, maybe we're just misunderstanding what the Bible means. And so uh, we, we begin to think like the world. And so unfulfilled expectations can cause you to doubt and even fall back into sinful patterns in your life. So the, but the imminent return of Christ is a great motivator to godly living. But if you begin to doubt that he's really coming back, it's easy to go astray into sinful behavior. So that's where we stopped last week. We saw the reasons for John's doubt. But how did John, Jesus address the issue of doubt with John? Uh, how did he reassure him? Well, let's look at verses 4 to 6. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The leopards are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. What did Jesus mean by that answer? Well, he knew that John's disciples had been hanging around for a while watching him and they'd seen a lot and reported a lot. And now he's done all these special miracles for them. So he says, go back and tell him more. Go back and tell him, look, John, can't you see that I'm the one who will make things right? I'm reaching out to the poor. I'm reversing disease. I'm reversing death. Can't you see it? It's limited right now because of the unbelief and sin of the world. Can't you see that I'm the one who's going to make it all right? I have the power to reverse the curse, and someday I will. Uh, these things are, and I'm doing are just previews of coming attractions, just a taste of what I'll do in the future. So trust me for the right timing. Uh, in other words, go back and give John all of my credentials. You see, all of the things that Jesus mentioned are all signs of the kingdom. In the kingdom, all disease is eliminated. In the kingdom, there is a lessening of the power of death. In the kingdom, the world will hear the gospel. In Isaiah 35, 4-6, God has this encouraging news for those who are fearful and doubting. Listen to this. Say to those with an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. 
Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. And in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which is the passage Jesus quoted when he announced his messiahship in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. It says, the spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. And so Jesus is saying, John, if it's your kingdom expectation that's causing you to doubt, look again at these things. These are all marks of the kingdom. You're seeing them in a preview. So then the works of our Lord answer the problem of doubt. If you doubt because of difficult circumstances, look at his works. Uh, they prove he cares for a people in difficulty. If you doubt because of worldly influence, look at his works. He is in control and someday will show it fully. If you doubt because of incomplete revelation, then look at his works and study them and read them and see who he is. If you doubt because of unfulfilled expectations, look again because these are all the previews of what he's going to do one day in the kingdom. If he could do them then, he proves himself to be the one who can do them again in the kingdom. You know what the best part of the story is? It's a part that Matthew doesn't put in here. It's this. And that's that John had his doubt removed by Jesus' answer. How do we know that? Well, look over at Matthew 14. One verse tells us. Start at verse 10. We're told, verses 10 11, that John is beheaded. His head's put on a platter, uh, presented to uh, Salome, who took it to her mother, Herodias. And then verse 12 says, And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Now, why did they go tell Jesus? Because they believed in Jesus. And why did they believe in Jesus? Because John believed in Jesus. John had made them to believe in Jesus. And the fact that they went to Jesus tells us John was satisfied with the answer he got from Jesus. We all doubt at times, don't we? But listen to 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, in other words, if we're doubting and disbelieving, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. When you doubt, God will be faithful. Uh, if, you doubt, you're, if you doubt, understand you're not going to lose your relationship with the Lord. He will be faithful. He cannot deny himself. And he has affirmed that you're his child and he'll hold on to you. Knowing that you can have the confidence and that you can go to God with your doubts, he'll give you the answers that you need. Uh, and then he gives this closing beatitude, a blessing. In verse 6 of our text in Matthew 11, very end it says, And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, it's a, it's a gentle rebuke, a gentle warning. He's saying, if you want to be blessed, then don't stumble over me. Don't doubt. The, the verb translated offense is skandalizo. Uh, 
we get our English word scandalize from this word. Originally, the word referred to a trap used to capture an animal. Over time, it came to mean any kind of object that caused someone to stumble and fall uh, with a derived meaning of causing offense. Uh, Jesus says, blessed is the man who doesn't stumble over me. Jesus is saying, if you want to be blessed, don't allow anything I do or anything I say to lure you into the trap of doubt and make you stumble. Uh, so don't doubt, because if you doubt, you won't be blessed. And by the way, let me add that G John's doubt didn't overshadow Jesus' love for this prophet, because in the next verses we're going about to start studying, 7 to 15, he gives the greatest testimonial to anyone he ever gave in his whole life. He tells us that John the Baptist was the greatest man who'd ever lived up until that time. So let's read the passage and get started on it. I doubt we'll finish it today. In fact, I know we won't. Verses 7 to 15. Now, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who, is to, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, if we were going to have a discussion who might be the greatest in whatever area of expertise that we were willing to discuss, that we wish to discuss, I'm sure we could have some very lively discussions about who we would consider to be the greatest in each particular field. If we debated about who the greatest people in world history have been, some people might say it was some well-known scientists like Albert Einstein or Marie Curie or Isaac Newton, or Louis Pasteur. Uh, others might say that the greatest was some famous politician like George Washington, or Abraham Lincoln, or Winston Churchill. Uh, if we were discussing the greatest inventor, some might say Thomas Edison, or Henry Ford, or Steve Jobs. Uh, and we could go on and on discussing who was the greatest, whether it was someone who was a business tycoon, or a war hero, or whomever. And when it comes to discussing who is the greatest among our athletes, uh, our culture's even developed a term for the individual who's considered to be the best in his or her particular field. We, we call them the GOAT, uh, which is an acronym for the greatest of all time. Uh, if we're talking about the greatest football quarterback who ever played the game, virtually everybody agrees it was Tom Brady. Uh, he's the GOAT. Uh, in NASCAR stock car racing, everybody calls Richard Petty the king because he won 200 races, almost twice as many as second place guy, the guy in second place. Uh, the famous boxer, Muhammad Ali, loved to arrogantly brag that he was the greatest. 
he was considered the best, but rather than be humble and let others praise him, he, he praised himself to everyone. Uh, in basketball, there's a constant debate about who the greatest player is to have played the game, and people argue whether it was Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson or Larry Bird or LeBron James or a long list of other great players. But when it comes to greatness as God defines it, it's a very different than it is for the world. And here in this passage, we hear Jesus talk about John the Baptist, who has come from a common, humble family, no wealth, no worldly education, no success, no particular physical beauty, no earthly possession or position, and yet Jesus says he was the greatest human being who ever lived. Look at the beginning of verse 11 again. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. It's an amazing statement. Uh, and it's, that's not just the opinion of his mother or father or someone else. I mean, there's lots of moms and dads who might say that about their child. This is a statement from the lips of Jesus himself. And to emphasize it, what does he say at the beginning of verse 11? Truly, which is this word, amen, from which obviously we get our word, um, amen. It means most certainly, or it is beyond dispute, or it is unquestionably true, or so be it. And he says a phrase after he says it, among those born of women, to refer to everyone in the human race. There's never been anyone born of anyone other than a woman. Contrary to what our world might try to say today. <laughs> this is a very old phrase. We find this phrase used all the way back in the book of Job. Uh, the very first book of the Bible ever to be written. In Job 14.1 it says, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Uh, in Job 15.1 it says, what is man that he should be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? So it's a designation of someone who is a human. Now listen carefully. Jesus said that when it comes to humanity, there's never been anyone greater than John the Baptist. Uh, he was the greatest human being to ever live. From, an earthly, from the earthly human perspective, his personal character, his privileged calling, and his powerful culmination made him the greatest man who ever lived. And you'll notice the statement, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. The word arisen is interesting because it was commonly used to speak of the appearance of a prophet. Uh, in fact, Matthew uses the same verb that way in Matthew 24, 11, Matthew 24, 24. In verse 11, uh, it says, many false prophets will arise and deceive many. And verse 24 in uh, Matthew 24 says, false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. So then the term arise is frequently used in reference to a prophet. So let me sum up what I'm saying. When it comes to humanness, when it comes to the uniqueness of a human being, when it comes to his special ability to speak, to speak powerfully, there was never anyone like John. As men stood back and perceived him, there was never anyone like him. He was the most powerful personality, the most powerful voice that ever spoke. He had a dynamic ability to communicate. There was never a prophet with more human talent, 
more significant role to play in human history than John the Baptist. It was unparalleled. And so think about this. In this sense, he was greater than Adam, Abel, Seth, Enoch, Melchizedek. He was greater than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He was greater than Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. He was the greatest human being that ever lived based upon his human abilities and his unique calling in human history. A man of tremendous greatness. And Jesus reinforces his greatness in this passage over and over again. Jesus is talking to the crowds as we learn from verse 7. And he's going to make sure that they understand the greatness of John the Baptist, but only as an illustration of a greater spiritual truth. And that's why at the end of verse 11, he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What he's saying is this, I'll give you this at the beginning and then we'll build up to it as we go through. When it comes to human talent and playing a role in human history, there was never anyone been anyone as great as John the Baptist. But when it comes to the spiritual dimension, the least person in the spiritual dimension is greater than the greatest person in the human dimension. That's what he's saying. Now, Jesus reinforces John's greatness, and he does it by discussing three major truths about John that mark his greatness. As I said before, they are his personal character, his privileged calling, his powerful culmination. Let's begin with his personal character. Look again at verses 7 and 8. Now, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. John was a man who had the marks it takes to be great, to be a cut above, to be set apart, to be unique. So let me suggest what those personal characteristics were. To see the first way John reflected his character, let's reflect back on verses 2 and 3. Uh, he was a man who could overcome his weakness. It's always a mark of greatness that a man can overcome his weakness. There, there are basically only two kinds of people. There are victims and victors. They are the victims uh, are the people who cannot rise above their circumstances, who cannot rise above their difficulties, who cannot rise above their weaknesses. And the victors are the people who can, and they're the ones who make a mark. Everyone has weaknesses. Everyone has failings and infirmities and problems. The question is whether or not you can overcome them, and that is the mark of greatness. The great ones fight through. The great ones battle against their problems. They war against their own ignorance. They war against their own laziness. They war against their own indifference. They war against their weakness, and they will overcome. That's the difference, and John had that ability. Remember, verse 2 told us he was in prison. And it was a difficult circumstance for a man who'd known freedom all of his life. He's not only in prison, but he's been victimized somehow by the current thinking about the Messiah. And so he's questioning whether Jesus is really the Messiah or not, because Jesus is not living up to the current expectations. He's really also somewhat hard-pressed to know whether Christ was really the Messiah because he had incomplete revelation. He didn't really have all the information he needed, and because he'd been in prison about a year his unfulfilled expectation of the Messianic kingdom made him question and doubt and become perplexed. 
So at this point, he's at a low point in his life. He's at a weak place. Circumstances, outside influences, lack of information, unfulfilled anticipations, all brought doubt and confusion and perplexity into his mind. How did he deal with it? Did he sulk? Did he just sort of drop his head and shuffle off? Did he despair? Did he start to tell all his problems to everybody else? No, he goes to Jesus. He sent some disciples and told them to ask if he's the one who should come or if we're looking for someone else. They went and asked. Jesus demonstrated with miracles. They went back and told John, and that settled the issue. It may not be an easy task, but the man who is great is always the man who deals with his weakness and overcomes it. I don't care what dimension of life you're talking about, whether you're talking about your ministry or your job or your schoolwork or your athletic career or whatever it is, greatness comes from an ability to get past your weakness. That marked John. The whole section, as I said, began with John's doubt. Chapters 11 and 12 deal with all different kinds of responses people can have to Christ. And the first response the Lord talks about is the response of doubt, and John is his illustration. And we see that John doubted, but that only gave an opportunity for him to manifest his greatness, to overcome that. So we learn that the first mark of a truly great person is to overcome your weakness. The first thing he did was to admit he had a weakness, and he was willing to admit it to his subordinates. He wasn't trying to play the game in which the boss tries to make everyone think that he's infallible and flawless and without any weaknesses. He didn't play to that illusion because anyone who tries that illusion remains in doubt and confusion. Uh, anyone who will not admit weakness is not going to get any help. So he admitted his weakness and then he sought to remove it and he acted upon that admission. By the way, I'd point out as a footnote that one of the greatest marks of this kind of man, one of the true te truest tests of greatness is humility. Uh, no one ever becomes great, truly great, unless they recognize they have weaknesses that must be overcome. It, it's the person who lives under the illusion of perfection that's the true fool. And Jesus said the key to greatness is humility, Matthew 20, 26. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Matthew 18, 4. Whoever therefore will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23 and 12. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. At least John had enough humility to say, I don't know, I'm not sure. And he said it to his subordinates and let them act on his behalf. And we see that humility evidenced in his life before he went to prison even. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, he said, Who who is coming after me is mightier than I am not will I'm not fit to remove his sandals. And then when Jesus came to him to be baptized, he says, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? In John 3.30, when Jesus, John's disciples started getting all concerned because all these other people were starting to follow Jesus instead of John, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. Uh, he was a man of humility. He was a man who recognized his own weakness. He could see it for what it was. And once you do that, you can deal with it. Pride curses greatness. It's, it's an illusion. Those who are great are those who see their weakness and work to overcome them, not those who fancy themselves to be without weakness.
And as long as you admit no weaknesses, you'll never grow to your full capability. Uh, you're doomed to a life of hypocrisy and mediocrity. So the first element in John's personal character to mark his greatness was the ability to recognize a weakness and overcome it. Let me show you a second one, and it's in verse 7. He not only was a man who was able to overcome his weakness, he was a man who was strong in his conviction. Look at verse 7. Now, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Why did you go out into the wilderness? What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? It's apparent that the crowd was listening to the question which John's disciples asked Jesus. Everyone knew that John was a prophet. We're told that in Matthew 21:26. And now as and now they knew that he was having doubts about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. So they must have been puzzled at that point and thinking, now, wait a minute. You know, John the Baptist is supposedly a great prophet, but he's got doubts. Maybe he's not as great a prophet as we thought. Maybe he's not as great as we think. How can we believe what he says? And so Jesus begins in verse 7, to reaffirm in their minds John's true greatness. Because often people are prone to assume that to admit weakness is not to be great, when the actually the very opposite is true. Uh, so Jesus asks them a very simple question. He says, you went out to see John when he was preaching in the wilderness. Did you go out there to see a reed shaken by the wind? What does he mean by that? What's he asking? Well, he wants to remind them of John's greatness, and he does it by pointing to their own attitude, their own experience with John. He doesn't want them to think of John as a vacillating kind of weak person with no ability to make up his mind. He wants them to know how great John really is. So his first question is, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? In other words, why did you leave Galilee and go all the way out in the desert around the Dead Sea? Why, why would you make such a long, hard journey? What was it that attracted you to that man? Why were you so curious? Why was he so magnetic? What was it about him that drew you out? Was it because he was a reed shaken by the wind? Was it simply because he was a vacillating, weak character, blowing back and forth with every new idea that came along? What's the obvious answer? No. Because if they wanted people like that, they could have found them at their local temple or synagogue. They could have found them there all day long. They were all over the place. If they wanted weak, vacillating, ordinary reeds that blew around with every wind, they could have found them in their own religious system. They certainly didn't need to go all the way out into the desert to find one. Those reeds that Jesus spoke about here are very common reeds that grow along the banks of the Jordan River where John baptized. They're everywhere by the thousands, uh, wherever there's a body of water. So they were just common, ordinary river reeds. They're light and flexible, waving back and forth with every breeze. And Jesus uses these reeds to symbolize a man who yields to popular opinion, a man who's blown about by ideas and pressures, a man who can be bought, a man who vacillates on what he believes, a man who plays to the audience, a man who says he thinks what he, he says what pe he thinks people want to hear. 
a man who veers from side to side, who doesn't have the courage or the boldness to be a man of conviction. It refers to the spineless. So Jesus is saying, did you go out there because he was just a common, ordinary, garden variety guy, blown around like everyone else with no strength and no conviction? If you wanted to find some spineless people, there's plenty of them right where you were. No, you didn't come out here to, because he was spineless. You didn't come out here because he was weak and pliable. So John was not common. He was not compromising, and they knew that. He didn't hold back his message for anyone. In Matthew 3, when all the religious leaders came out to hear him, if he wanted to play to the crowd, that was his moment. But you might be interested in what he said to them. Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming out for his baptism, he said to them, hey guys, how's it going? No, <laughs> he didn't say that. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up people to Abraham and the ax is already laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's pretty strong stuff. And then he goes on in verse 12 saying, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he'll thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he'll gather his wheat into the barn for he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's a devastating diatribe against the religious leaders. In fact, the whole leadership of Israel had overlooked Herod's horrible adultery and illicit marriage. But John looked him in the eye and told him it was sin and that's why John was thrown in prison and would soon have his head chopped off and brought to Herodias on a plate. So it wasn't because he was a reed shaking in the wind that they went to see him. If they wanted to see that kind of man, they would find him everywhere. It's because he was a man of great conviction. He was a man who believed that right is right even if everyone's against it and wrong is wrong even if everyone's for it. He was a man of great conviction. He was great because he faced his weakness and overcame it. And because he was strong in his conviction and no one could intimidate him. He knew what was right and he would do it. When the great 4th century church father John Chrysostom uh, was arrested by the Roman emperor. The emperor tried to make the Greek Christian recant his uh, faith, deny his faith and recant. And he was unsuccessful. So the emperor discussed with his advisors what should be done to Chrysostom. He said, shall I put him in a dungeon? And uh, his counselors replied, no, he'll be glad to go. He longs for the quietness where he can delight in the mercies of his God. Uh, then he, the emperor says, then he shall be executed. The counselors said, no, for he'll also be glad to die. He declares that in the event of his death, he'll be in the presence of his God. The emperor said, well, then what do we do? And the counselor said, there's only one thing that will cause Chrysostom pain. To cause him to suffer, make him sin. He's afraid of nothing except sin. What a great testimony, right? That's, that's much like John the Baptist. 
Scripture affirms the value of a person with conviction. In James 1.8, James says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Ephesians 4.14, Paul says that we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Be a person of conviction. That is a mark of greatness. If you study history, you find that those who were considered great were people who had convictions about something and they pursued those convictions to the end. That was a mark of their greatness. There are a lot of people who can go along in short spurts and then be intimidated out of that conviction or or just can't sustain it for a lifetime. But the great ones, all against all opposition, carry through. The third mark of John's personal character was his self-denial. His self-denial. And this is another element of greatness, self-denial. The truly great people are the people who can deny himself. When you go back and study history and you read about the lives of the great military leaders who put their lives on the line, went through incredible hardship to win a victory, or you read about famous scientists who sequestered themselves away for months and years trying to discover something that we now take for granted, or when you read about a missionary who gave up everything that we might consider good in order to take the gospel to a people group in some out-of-the-way place, you should recognize that that's a mark of greatness. Uh, If you're always being diverted by the desire for comfort, if you can't take pain and you've always got to find the easy way, then you'll never know what greatness is because greatness understands self-denial. Look at verse 8. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. Jesus is asking, when you went all the way out into the desert, look at this man. Did you go out there to see a man clothed in soft raiment like they wear in the king's house? Did you go out there just to see another typical guy who's a courtier, who, who operates in the palace, who favors the king? who does whatever you need to do to get the royal favors, who lives a life of luxurious self-indulgence? Hardly. If you study the historical background of biblical times, you'll find that in the early days of Herod the Great, many of the scribes who were attracted to Herod and wanted to seek favor from him would take off their usual plain clothing, which was the mark of a scribe, and they would put on the ornate, luxurious robes of Herod's court. They sold out. But John the Baptist was no self-seeker. He was no part of the system at all. He lived in the wilderness. His cause was not comfort. I'm sure there were times he wished he had it, but his cause was not self-indulgence. His cause was not to see how easy it could be on him. He wasn't trying to figure out whether he could just hang around with those in power and influence and authority long enough to gain some riches and wealth and a life of ease. He wasn't interested in the ease of the world. He wasn't interested in gaining favor from people above him who could pad his wallet and grant him a life of comfort. He stood apart, unstained by the system. He was above it. He was a man so consumed by a greater cause in his own mind that he couldn't be attracted to the system. If you want to know what kind of lifestyle he led is very simple. According to Matthew 3, 4, he had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. That's a rough camel hair coat and a rough leather belt. 
Those are not nicely finished designer versions of those items, okay? And he was eating grasshoppers and honey. I imagine that's the only way anybody could eat locusts. They would, <laughs> they would, what they did is they pan fried a batch of locusts, which are like grasshoppers. They threw some salt and seasoning on them, and then they would mix in some honey and eat them like roasted peanuts. Um, that's not the kind of food they ate in the king's palace. It was the kind of it was the food of the poor common people of the desert. His lifestyle was a living protest against self-indulgence. His lifestyle was a statement about self-centeredness. He was utterly abandoned to the cause that God gave him as that he was not attracted to the world and its standards. His devotion to his ministry completely superseded any personal interest and comforts, and that was the mark of greatness. He was like a soldier who does whatever it takes, even giving his life if need be to win the victory. He was like the athlete who disciplines his body to the fullest extent because he has a goal to achieve. So we understand what it means for someone to deny himself in pursuit of a greater goal. Great people are concerned with reaching a goal. They are concerned with a mission that supersedes any personal comfort or self-indulgence. That was how it was with John the Baptist. His commitment was a consuming commitment. In fact, according to Luke 1.15, when the angel told Zechariah that Elizabeth was going to have a son and that he would be named John, the angel also told him, he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will not drink any wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. That phrase about not drinking any wine or strong drink meant that he was to take a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow meant that he would immediately be eliminated from all of the fancy banquets and receptions and nice events that one would normally attend. It was, it was a part of the Nazarite vow to allow your hair to grow without ever cutting it which didn't exactly keep you up with the current society trend and hairdos. And you could not touch a dead body. Get this, even your own parents' bodies when they died. A Nazarite vow was extremely severe. You were saying, I do not care what I look like. I do not care about indulging myself in the normalities of life. I'm given to a cause. There were many people who took a Nazarite vow for a few weeks or a few months. Uh, there were only three people listed in Scripture who took that vow for life. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. Samson blew it badly. He, he touched the dead body of a lion, and he went on a huge week-long drinking party to celebrate his illicit marriage to a Philistine woman. And, of course, he ended up getting his hair cut, and God removed his great physical strength. But John's Nazarite vow was even greater than the vow required of Levitical priest. Uh, the Le Levites could only have to restrict themselves from wine and strong drink while they were functioning as a priest, according to Leviticus 10. But John did it for life. He took it to the highest level. He was committed to self-denial. And it wasn't that he was denying himself to gain some kind of penance. He was not like the many ascetics throughout church history who've sought to win God's favor by feats of self-inflicted poverty and pain and humiliation. One ascetic named Asclepius, 
Asclepius, wore so many heavy chains around his neck that he had to crawl on his hands and knees, all because he thought he could get rid of his sin by causing himself pain. A, a monk named Bessarion wouldn't give in to his body's desire for restful sleep, so for 40 years he wouldn't lie down. He slept only while sitting in a chair. Uh, Macarius the Younger sat naked in a swamp for six months until the mosquito bites on his skin made him look like he had leprosy. The most famous of the ancient ascetics was a man by the name of Simeon Stylatus of Syria. He died in AD 460 at the age of 72 after spending 37 years sitting on the top of different pillars, each one higher and narrower than the last, and his last pillar was 66 feet high. Uh, Agnes de Roger was the only daughter of one of the wealthiest merchants in Paris, and she was admired by all of the neighborhood for her beauty and virtue. And when she was 18, her father died, leaving her the sole possessor of his wealth. And he gave, she gave away all of her wealth and determined to become what at that time was called a recluse. And from the age of 18 until she died at 80, she lived in a small chamber built into the wall of a Paris cathedral. The chamber had a small opening through which she could listen to the mass, take communion, and have food passed to her by family and friends. So when I talk about John's self-denial, I'm not talking about some sort of strange asceticism. I'm talking about the one who denies himself to accomplish a goal that is obtainable and that is not totally self-consuming. John was a great man. He was remarkable. In fact, you know that people thought he was the Messiah? That's what an incredible person John the Baptist was. In Luke 3.15, we're told the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. So he was a tremendous man because of his personal character. And that brings us to the end of that section. We'll look next at his privileged calling, but of course that won't be today. Okay? Uh, let me uh, just say that I am leaving. Marsha and I are leaving Tuesday on vacation, so I won't be here next week. Frank will be teaching. No, Frank's not teaching. He's, he's going to. It's, it's uh, Oliver Smith. <coughs> Oliver Smith is coming to teach. And uh, so um, I know that uh, he's, he's taught here before, and, and he got good remarks from the old guys back here. So, <laughs> look at Terry. I look at Terry. Where? Where? So. Okay. Well, let's. Uh...